Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, all available at your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 50 years of brewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we're going to head into the pub to cover some of the news, because it's been a while since we covered the news, before we head off into the brewery to go talk about some of the things we've been doing, and also then talking in the lounge with a very special collaborative partner of ours. But before that stuff happens, here's some messages from the people who make this show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey, we're back, and you must be too. To start things off today, we're going to do some announcements. Yep, and of course, as always, go and check your show feed because we just released a new episode of The Brew Files all about Mexican lager. What the heck is it? How the heck do you make it? Why should you make it? Trust me, it's summertime, even though it doesn't look like it here in L.A. (laughs) And also, we need to remind you that coming up next week is HomebrewCon in San Diego, June 22nd through 24th. We're going to be doing a seminar on modern hop techniques in West Coast IPA, taking some of the stuff that all the hazy guys usually use and applying it to West Coast IPA. So uh, we hope if you're at HomebrewCon, you'll come by and take a listen to that. And it just so happens that we have collaborated with the North Park Beer Company and Kelsey McNair to have a very special beer brewed that uh, kind of expresses our vision. Yeah, In fact, it's so special. As so available that as you're listening to this on the day that HomebrewCon starts, or actually I really, I guess the day before HomebrewCon starts, uh, which would be June 21st from 6 to 8 p.m., we will be working with the folks at North Park and BSG Handcraft to give away, well, one, a grandfather, give away other prizes, and you can get a discounted pint at North Park Beer Company. $5 pints will be available to AHA members during the during the event. So you can come and join us and get your hands and your taste buds around a pint of Denny Kong. That's right. A, a very, very special beer, and I, I'm honored to uh, have it named after me, uh, kind of. Yeah. Well, so just don't forget North Park Beer Company. It's the brewery location, not the Banker Silver location. We'll be at the brewery location. Bring your AHA membership card, 6 to 8, 
on June 21st. And if you can't make it to that, uh, there's going to be several places at the uh, trade show during HomebrewCon that will be serving the beer. You can get it uh, at the More Flavor booth. You can get it at the Y Yeast booth. And, of course, you can come by the BSG booth and get some. And uh, along with that, I also want to remind you that on Friday the 23rd from 1230 to 2 p.m., we are going to be recording a podcast live from the trade show floor, BSG booth 701. So if you're there, come on by, harass us, ask us embarrassing questions, any of that kind of stuff, you know, whatever you want to hear on the show. Indeed. And speaking of the show, don't forget you can support the show by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BOIO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Our charity is Best Friends until the end of June. It's a great, great organization that rehomes pets uh, that are in shelters where they may be euthanized, moves them to other shelters, gets them fostered, gets them a forever home. Uh, the kind of stuff that we love to help out with, we hope you do too. So go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, shoot us a few bucks that we can pass along to them. <laughs> Gotta save them all. That's right. All right. And with that, it's time to go have a beer. Okay, let's do that. We'll be back right after these messages. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grainfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grainfather.com.
welcome to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere in cyberspace, wherever that is. We're sitting here having a couple beers. We both kind of have summerish beers today. Drew, why don't you talk about yours? Yeah, we have summerish beers, but again, the weather here in L.A. is not very summery right now. It's, oh, it's gray and like 67. It. Oh, man, I can't believe that we're going to be 90 today. Man, I guess it's time for you to uh, leave Pasadena and get up here where it's warm. (laughs) No, thank you. Too many trees. (laughs) Uh, But speaking of things that are delicious to have in your face, uh, I'm having a delicious Moments Italian Pilsner from Everywhere Beer Company in Orange, California. So uh, Everywhere is a relatively new brewery. They've been open less than a year. And they are... I mean, they're a bunch of brewery alums, so, you know, brewery, uh, Patrick Rue's old place, uh, which now seems to serve as a launching pad for a lot of other craft breweries, because <laughs> there's at least three down in Orange County, I can think of, that, that are launched by uh, former members of yeah, the brewery right. staff. Um, but Everywhere Beer, this is their Italian Pilsner, so I think a a German-esque Pilsner infused with a lot of dry hop character to it, and... Boy, it's just one of those beers that just coats the tongue in hop, hoppy goodness. Uh, so highly recommended. It's, you know, it, it's not quite uh, to use, I know, one of Denny's favorite terms, crushable. Um, <laughs> but it is a very, very drinkable beer and really does a neat trick as it warms up and kind of opens up in the glass where that flavor just becomes even more sort of effusive. So highly Ooh. recommended. Definitely, uh, definitely feel like Italian pills and hoppy lagers in general are having a moment, and I'm here for it. Wow, that sounds really good, man. That's a really emerging style. It's really coming on heavy, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been around for a, a, a while, but I think now that more American craft brewers are embracing the idea of, hey, we could do lagers, um, I, think, I think it's going to see more and more of it here. Yeah, yeah, I agree, man. I just wish Firestone and Walker would bring back Pivo. Uh, that was a great beer. Yeah. That was a great beer. So, all right, what are you drinking, sir? I am back to yet another Ale Song beer because I just Sugar. picked up a whole bunch of them. Yeah, right, you know. Um, I am drinking one from their recent release uh, of last May called Stony Point Saison. It's a uh, an unfiltered farmhouse made with almost all Oregon-grown ingredients, uh, malt from Goshi Farms, unmalted grains from the Camas Country Mill, which is just up the road a couple miles from me. It's fermented with a, a Brett mixture, uh, and it's just got some wonderful, wonderful dry hop character from uh, Willamette hops that come from Crosby Hop Farm. And then to finish it off, they uh, added some local honey, uh, so it, I mean, it's a really, really nice beer. It's, I want to, it's more hop forward than maybe you would think from the description, but it's just got a nice bracing character to it. Uh, medium body, so it's easy to drink, but really, really full flavored. Uh, highly recommend it if you have a chance to get some Ale Song beer. Yeah. Who knew Ale Song knows how to make a mixed cultured farmhouse beer? yeah right who would have guessed well but i also like the leaning into using as many local ingredients as possible so i'll uh, i just like to see that yeah yeah and and they do a lot of that Uh, they are right next door to one of the largest wineries around king estates 
and they often uh, use grapes and juice from King Estates. King Estates grows a, a variety of other organic fruit also that uh, often ends up in ale selling beers. So they're really into the uh, to the going local thing. There you go. Local vorism in the brewery. Why not? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So going local to going craft beer, uh, it, as I said in the intro, it's been a while since we talked about the news, and there have been a couple of big stories that have happened since then, and you all know us, so no huge surprise that we've been tracking the stuff that happened around uh, the Craft Brewers Conference. So um, realistically, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in Tennessee that's not making people feel very loved there, shall we say. Um, and unfortunately, of course, a conference like the Craft Brewers Conference, it's a big deal. Uh, lots of people, not very many spaces in which you can hold it. And so the CBC this year was in, in Nashville and the Brewers Association got taken to task by a, a number of the members for essentially holding it in a place that's not very friendly to folks of color or folks of alternate gender orientations and sexual orientations. Um, and, I don't know. I wasn't very happy with how the BA responded. How about you? Uh, you know, this is something I don't want to say a whole lot about because it's, you know, I, my opinion doesn't really count for anything. But yeah, I have to admit that I thought that their response was pretty weak and I can see how some people could feel like they weren't being taken seriously. Yeah. So uh, just kind of disappointing, but uh, just a reminder, be good to your people, people. <laughs> <laughs> Be good to each other. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's uh, that's all we're going to say about the CBC. But uh, if you know us, you know where we stand on this sort of stuff. Um, in more positive news, at least from the you know commercial aspect of things, there has been an increasing trend of breweries buying themselves back. So a couple years back, one of our local breweries or one of my local breweries here, Three Weavers, bought themselves back from Canarchy. Uh, they had joined that group, uh, but what we're starting to see now is uh, it looks like some of the big guys are, how would you put it, Denny, uh, divesting their investments? Yeah, like maybe it's just not working for them. Yeah, and so a couple of instances that we saw, uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev, they just sold back to the founders of the company, uh, Appalachian Mountain. Uh, this is kind of interesting to see because earlier this year they shut down Platform, uh, Appalachian Mountain was never a very large brewery, and they've sort of walked back that investment and given it back to the founders. So Appalachian Mountain is back on the table in terms of craft for that. And the the one that endlessly amuses me is Constellation. Uh, you guys will most of most folks will know Constellation as the people who import Corona, right? Uh, and I think they also do Yellow Jacket wines, but. Constellation made that big move into craft brewing a, a while back when they paid $1 billion, with a B, uh, for Ballast Point. And we all will remember that a lot of people in the craft brewer world went, you paid how much for what? <laughs> um, and they ended up selling it to, what was it, Kings and Convicts for $41 million. So they paid $1 billion. And they sold it for $41 million, which I'm fairly certain is not the way you're supposed to do that. Um, <laughs> That's very understated, Drew. Yeah. Um, they also, in this run-up of investing in craft breweries, they bought uh, Funky Buddha down in South Florida. And they bought Four Corners over in Texas. 
both of those breweries have now bought themselves back from Constellation because Constellation is uh, closing its craft beer business uh, and is instead choosing to focus on things like Modelo. Uh, and I just thought that was interesting. Funky Buddha was always kind of an interesting brewery to me because they they got best known for doing fruited sours and sort of crazy flavored stouts, which uh, they were kind of ahead of the curve on that one. And so I kind of understand why Constellation bought them, but now it's back to being a local run business. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So it, just interesting. I'll, I'm, I'm going to be curious to see if there's an increasing trend of some of these purchase groups that we've seen, some of the ABI stuff, the Miller stuff. Uh, sees if more of that's going to get walked back, but we'll, we'll find out. Yep, exactly. Now, on the other side of the the fence, in terms of the amateur stuff, uh, our good friend Tony has announced that he's closing Micro Homebrew up there in Seattle. Yeah, it's a, a real drag. Definitely one of the uh, nicest homebrew shops I have ever had the uh, the pleasure to visit. And Tony and his wife Cat are just a couple of the nicest people you could ever possibly meet. They had a, a very friendly, knowledgeable staff. Um, it, it's a big loss for the brewing community, but uh, Tony needed to move on and do something a little bit less stressful. Yeah, and it's a shame, too, because, I mean, that shop was really well run, really well organized, and uh, Tony is obviously very passionate about beer, so uh, yeah. here we are. And on the same Angle, you all remember uh, Texas Brewing, you know, Come and Brew Radio, those guys. Uh, they had shut down their retail store uh, a couple of years back, I think during the middle of COVID. Uh, but they had homebrewing operations continuing as a sort of mail order business. Uh, but they just announced that they are ceasing all homebrew sales. Now, don't feel sorry for them because the reason why they're ceasing the homebrew sales is they're focusing on their pro-brewing side of the business. So they also supply pro-breweries. Uh, so no more homebrewing from Texas Brewing, but if you're a pro, you can still buy ingredients and parts from them. Which you should probably do because they're great people too. Yep. And also while we've been gone in the news, uh, unfortunately, uh, Rosa Merck's passed away. If you don't know who Rosa was, uh, uh, get ready for some sour beer education. Uh, Rosa is widely credited as the woman who revitalized Leafman's Brewing, uh, you know, kind of changing how their product was, making it more palatable to modern palates and everything else. What I thought was great about her story was that she started at Leafman's, I think back in the late 40s, like 1949, 1950 area, uh, as a secretary and started working very closely with the managing director there and eventually trained her palate, worked with the company to change things and ended up becoming the director of brewing operations. So if you've had any of the Leafman's beers over time, uh, and you've enjoyed them, you can thank her. She just passed away, and we'll include a link to a really great uh, story about her life uh, from Brandon Jones and uh, Embrace the Funk. So yeah. go go and give that a quick read and learn some more of your beer history, folks. And then and then finally, one last uh, bit of story. We're staying over in Europe, and this one does has, well, not really brewing news, but beer-related usage that you never would have thought of. Uh, there's new analysis that's been done on some of the 19th century Danish painters, you know, those very famous painters with all the, all the bright colors and whatnot. And scientists are now saying that they believe that they were using dregs from the beer making process in the basis for their paints. And that's part of the reason why the paints have such, you know, bright colors and staying power. Once again, proving beer, is there nothing it can't do? 
Boy, really, man, this is one of those that really uh, drives that home, doesn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> back in the day when uh, when paint didn't really come in a tube and part of the art was knowing how to make it. So wow. there you go. Beer, uh, beer and paint. A wonderful combination. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure that no amount of beer could make my painting any better. Oh, hell no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless with the, with a brush in hand. All yeah. right. Shall we get out of here? Yeah, let's uh, let's head over to the brewery and talk about some of the things that uh, I've been brewing, huh? Absolutely. We'll be right back after these messages. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Experience a one-of-a-kind hop and beer education event. Yakima Chief Hop's 20th Annual Hop and Brew School will be held August 29th through September 1st in Yakima, Washington. Come celebrate the excitement of Yakima Valley's hop harvest. Hop and Brew School is a highly interactive educational event surrounding every brewer's favorite ingredient, hops. Attendees can expect farm and facility tours, presentations from industry leaders, professional panel discussions, and advanced sensory experiences. Registration is open and tickets are limited. Visit hopandbrewschool.com slash yakima to reserve your spot today. I'll be there and I hope you will too. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for us to be in the brewery. I got tanks a pinging, there's stainless steel a gleaming, and now it's time to talk about what some of Denny's been making. Tanks a pinging. <laughs> Work with me. Uh, it sounds it sounds like that should be in a Christmas carol or something. <laughs> Chestnuts uh, roasting on an open pinging tank. Yeah, that's right. I've uh, I've whipped out a couple batches recently. I did a, a German pills, and I did uh, another batch of my Hoblin Shoes Belgian IPA because I just love that stuff so much. Uh, both of them used Hana malt uh, as the base. Uh, that's from Crisp. Uh, it's a Pilsner malt that is just full of flavor. Absolutely delicious. Uh, the German pills was. Uh, Pretty much my standard recipe, uh, bittering with German Magnum, finishing with, uh, with Czech Zaz. Uh, there were a couple differences from the way I usually make it though. For one thing, I was feeling like my German pills always just turned out 
too intensely bitter. So I changed the water profile a bit. I went from the uh, Brunewater yellow uh, dry to Brunewater yellow balanced. And I also used uh, a new yeast that I hadn't used before. I used Nova Lager, dry lager yeast from Fermentus. Uh, as far as I can tell, this stuff is kind of like a blend of ale and lager yeast, but uh, I fermented it at 53 Fahrenheit, uh, lager temp, because that's what Fermentus did. The results are really, really good, and it's hard to tell, you know, which thing uh, made the difference. I think it was more the yeast than the water treatment, but, you know, I don't know for sure. It really has a very malt-forward flavor, but still has a nice balancing bitterness to it. Uh, and, you know, it it's one of the favorite lagers that I've made. My first thought was, geez, maybe I like this yeast better than Diamond. But without a side-by-side, I can't really tell. So the next brew is going to be a split batch of German pills. And I'll use Diamond on one batch and use Nova on the other batch and just try and get a handle on what the differences are and if I like one better than the other or if the differences are pronounced enough, maybe I'll go back and forth depending on what kind of Pilsner I'm looking for. Uh, at any rate, if if you haven't tried Nova Lager yet, uh, it's it's worth checking out. Uh, I know you can ferment it warm. Uh, I would say don't <laughs> if you have the opportunity. Well, I was going to say that's that's kind of their big angle that they're pushing on it for, right? Is the idea that hey, this is something that you can use to make lager-like beers at warmer temperatures, which seems to be everybody's big bugaboo right now. Yeah, I know. I I think that I think that maybe uh, that is not really the main selling point of it. the flavor is as much of a selling point uh, as that is so uh well and, and anyway, I know, but all the all the discussion i'm seeing around it like yeah is all oh look you can make a warm lager you know? yeah well i i know but that doesn't mean just because you can doesn't mean you should right right exactly yeah you know it is how how that goes and you know and it might make a very good lager at, at warmer temperatures i haven't tried it so i can't speak to it but uh you know uh Fermentus uh, tested it. Uh, they have test results at uh, 53 Fahrenheit that said it fermented to completion at that height or at that temperature in six days. And that was pretty darn true for me also. Uh, so then I, I also made a batch of my Hoblin shoes, uh, my Belgian IPA based on Ublon Schoof. Pretty much the same recipe I always do. Except for, for you made a mistake. Or so I thought. Yeah, right. Uh, when I tried the beer, the first thing I noticed was that the Amarillo dry hops were really popping, really, really jumping out at me. And I'm, I'm just extremely happy about that because uh, the, the flavors and aromas of Amarillo really go with the flavors and, uh, and aromas of the uh, Schuf yeast, the Ardenne 3522 that, uh, that I use in it. So I thought maybe, okay, let's, let's maybe make a, a triple next, right? I had picked up two pouches of YU's 3522 and two pouches of YU's 3787. The idea of making the Belgian IPA and then following it up with a triple. So I went over and looked in my yeast fridge and what did I see? But one package of 3522 and one package of 3787. 
So I had, I had mistakenly pitched one of each into this beer. Um, I did find that the phenols were a little bit more restrained than they are when I just use uh, all 3522. I'm getting a touch of the fruitiness of the 3787 in it, but it's actually a darn good combination. I'm, I'm very happy with it. Believe me, I'm not going to toss that beer out. Um, and it, it, actually, I'm taking this as a test for another concept I, I had. Uh, I really get into North Coast Prankster this time of year. I, I don't know if you could exactly call it a Belgian pale ale, but it, it, it's in that neighborhood. And they talk about using a blend of yeasts in it. And I'm finding that this 3522-3787 combo is like in in the ballpark of what they're doing. So I think I'm going to try doing my own homage uh, with some Pills malt, uh, a little bit of wheat, and a little bit of rye, and see what happens. I have no idea what kind of malts they use in theirs. I don't really care because this is inspired by Prankster. I'm not trying to make Prankster. Um, but, you know, it, I consider it a serendipitous mistake. All right, so... What, you said what you got less phenols overall from doing the blend and a little more ester. Yeah, exactly. I and mean, normally what I do is I use uh, two packs of uh, 3522 in an SNS starter. Uh, but this time I ended up with one 3522, And I'm thinking I can really pick out the qualities of both. Hmm. Now, I've said many times in the past that I'm not a big fan of co-pitching yeast, blending them, because you never know what's going to happen. So that's the other thing I'm looking forward to finding out when I try this experiment again, if I get the same kind of character or if one's going to dominate. Yes. Now, why why historically are you not a fan of doing co-pitches? Because I have found that maybe half a dozen times I've tried it, one yeast dominates so much that I really get very little of the other one, or so I've thought. And maybe it's the yeasts I've been using when I co-pitch, you know. Um, who knows? But I, I this time I got good results, and so I'm going to try the same thing again and see if I get good results again or see if it just goes wacky on its own and uh, validates my theory about why I don't usually co-pitch. So you're going to redo it again so you can prove that it's not a fluke. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be using a different grain bill, but uh, the same yeast combo, just to see if I get the same kind of character again. Yeah, see, and I don't tend to to dual pitch much outside of the world of Belgians. Like if I if I'm doing a, a Belgian style, a lot of times I'll think about whether or not I want to do a, two or more yeast. And of course that that was drilled into me as a young brewer by MB. Uh, but I always find for whatever reason I get a better for me, a better character when I do multiple strains in a Belgian beer rather than just a single strain. But to your point, uh, that, that may also just be, you know, self-perception, you know, yeah, or self-confirmation. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's why I really want to try it again and uh, and see if I can uh, duplicate it or prove to myself that uh, now it's too uncontrollable. All right, well, let's see. 
Now, let's talk some more about yeast, because you've dug up some artifacts. Yeah, um, I've dug up a lot of artifacts, but the one that I really want to talk about is uh, from a discussion that happened on uh, the AHA forum uh, about uh, starters, starter size, starters for dry yeast, uh, stuff like that. And it, it's a really wide-ranging uh, conversation with some Great, great info from our good friend Keith Yeager, who's been a commercial brewer for many years, as well as a, a great home brewer. Yeah, somehow um, he, can't, he he seems to keep like not being a professional brewer and then becoming a professional brewer again. He just can't leave yeah. it alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that he just wants the right situation, and now he finally has a, a, his own brewery again. So I think that that's it. But. Let's just relate this to the discussion of making starters for dry yeast, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now, we've always maintained that a starter for dry yeast is unnecessary because you don't need to increase the cell count and that it already has uh, all the nutrients it needs uh, kind of built into it when it is made, when it's manufactured. So Keith made the point that making too small a starter with yeast that is looking to grow, grow and rebuild their nutrient reserves can actually be detrimental, right? Now, if you take that dry yeast and you pitch it into five gallons, that's the amount of wort that that amount of yeast is made to ferment. If, however, you take that dry yeast and you think, oh, I'm going to make a starter to get the cell count up, and you make, say, a one or two liter starter, you may not have any cell growth whatsoever because of the crab tree effect. The dry yeast will simply use all their reserves, consume all the sugars, and not replicate. Um, but And that doesn't matter how fresh your dry yeast is, you know, the same thing will happen. They're just going to use up their reserves and not replicate because there's not enough wort left there for cell growth. And at the same time, because they're not going through this full growth cycle, they're not going to be able to rebuild their nutrient reserves and, and sterols at the end of it. So the idea that people have that they want to make a starter with dry yeast to increase the cell count is really misguided. You don't need to increase the cell count. It's highly likely that you won't increase the cell count. And in the meantime, you're going to be weakening that yeast. So there's a, there's a lot more to this, more aspects of, of this that we'll go into uh, on another show because there's uh, there's things about repitching slurry and stuff that I've been uh, getting into recently. But for right now, let's just look at this and say, if you've been making starters with dry yeast, stop it, and chances are you will have better luck and better beer. There you go. Well, again, it's the, the concept of using the tool as intended can sometimes, you know, lead to better results, shall we say. Keith quoted something that he thought uh, came from Jamil. It says, if you have 100 sheep and an acre of grass, the sheep will eat all of the grass, but there isn't enough food to feed all of them, so some die off and there's very little procreation. 
But if you have 100 sheep on 100 acres of grass, the sheep have plenty to eat, and as they graze, they also procreate, whoopee, and their population grows as well. So, you know, making a starter with dry yeast with just a little bit of wort is going to be detrimental. Now, let's just take this one step further. For our shaken, not stirred starter method that we advocate, we talk about using a very small amount of wort. But the difference is that you are not letting that starter ferment to completion. You're taking it during high croissant and pitching it into your wort. So basically then you're giving it this another hundred acres to, to grow on, right? It's when you ferment to completion in a small amount of wort, that's when you're going to have issues. Right. So again, use your dry yeast as, uh, as intended. Uh, don't forget the other piece of advice that's changed. You don't have to rehydrate it. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, right. dried yeast is becoming uh, you know, easier and better and uh, faster to use. So make sure you uh, give it a shot. You know, I, think of, I think we've lost a lot of the uh, dried yeast snobbery over time. Oh, uh, yeah. And, it's so much better now. Well, and one of the things I noticed as a knock-on effect of the COVID pandemic was a lot of breweries like a lot of professional breweries also switched over to using dry yeast because, you know, they didn't have to worry about trying to keep the slurries up and running and all that sort of fun stuff. So dry yeast, incredibly convenient and now even easier to use. <laughs> Sounds like a commercial. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I have a, my little, my little freezer over here has a collection of dry yeast in there just because I always have that on hand now. Yeah. Oh, I do too. And, you know, I also have a collection of liquid yeast on hand because there are some flavors you just can't get out of dry yeast. Yep. But uh, if you can find a dry yeast that will give you what you want, it's always a viable option. Yep. All right. So we'll get more into dry yeast later, but tell us about your thoughts on dry yeast. And remember, don't rehydrate. Don't make a starter. You're hurting yourself. That's right. All right. Let's go lounge. Yeah, we're going to head over to the lounge. Dread a great chat with Kelsey McNair of North Park Beer Company about uh, the Denny Kong beer and just Kelsey's general philosophy and approach to making IPA. Stick around and we'll listen to that in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Up your IPA game with homebrewing techniques, craft beer clone recipes, and a free book from the American Homebrewers Association. Push your brews to the limits with Brewing Eclectic IPA by Dick Cantwell. Or dive into the science and history with IPA, Brewing Techniques, Recipes, and the Evolution of India Pale Ale by Mitch Steele. Join for one year and receive your choice from 60 different brewing books. Head to homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for offer details. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. This spring, Y-Yeast is featuring two yeast strains that have revolutionized craft brewing, 1056 American Ale and 1318 London Ale 3. These legendary strains have shaped many beers over the decades, and the king of craft beer itself, the IPA. From iconic American IPAs to New England styles, these brewmasters' favorites are available year-round in the Activator Smack Pack system for your next brew day. 
Our featured strains are complemented with a limited release of 1217 PC West Coast IPA, a yeast with balanced neutral character and a good flocculation, and 2575 PC Kolsch 2 for brewing a German IPA or keeping it traditional with a rich profile and soft malt finish for Kolsch. Available now through June. Head over to whyyeastlab.com for our latest brewing advice and more info on this spring's legacy curation. Let's get brewing. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer, so come on in, Uh, come on in, just come on in, and pour yourself a beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. Well, Drew had hoped to get down to San Diego when Kelsey brewed the Denny Kong for the homebrew con, but wasn't able to make it. But he did get online with him and uh, talk a lot about the beer. Yeah, I, I I don't know if it's still in the interview, but I swear to God, every time I've ever tried to go down to talk to Kelsey, because Kelsey's been a longtime friend, you know, homebrewer, and is killing it with his IPAs there at North North Park Beer. Uh, so, but every time I try to get down to go see him, something happens. And the last time I tried, COVID happened. So maybe I should be careful. <laughs> um, but here we are. Go, go and listen and learn what exactly uh, we did for this Denny Kong IPA and some of the discussions that we had, including the debate about Crystal. Kelsey, say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. <laughs> so, Kelsey, give people the uh, the background. All right. Um, yeah, so I am the uh, founder and head brewer of North Park Beer Co. here in San Diego. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we opened in 2016. Um, I was a home brewer for over a decade before opening the brewery. Uh, you know, kind of my claim to fame in the uh, amateur brewing days was uh, uh, IPA that uh, is our current uh, flagship beer, Hop Fu, uh, won uh, several gold medals uh, at the National Homebrew uh, Conference. Um uh, and uh, picked up a silver uh, mixed in there too, all in the span of uh, five years. Um, and uh, yeah, I made the plunge to to go pro, and you know we we make a lot of uh, IPAs here, West Coast hazies. Uh, you know we make a lot of lagers, barrel aged stouts. Um, yeah, uh, we're we are a uh, you know we've got a big tap room um, and uh, fifteen barrel brew house. Making making beer, so making lots of good beer too. I always, even though I'm not in San Diego, I'm on the the mailing list, so I always get the the weekly can release uh, promotions and go. Oh, I wish I could have some of that. <laughs> well, you can. I mean, you know, we do ship uh, throughout the state. So <laughs> once again, one of the few positive benefits to the whole COVID pandemic uh, thing: direct to consumer in California. Yay! Yes. Yeah. Um. Well, but let's talk a little. So Hopfu is actually part of the reason that we're talking about this, because uh, when Denny and I decided that we were going to do this talk down in San Diego at HomebrewCon here in a couple of weeks, 
you know, it was all going to be about the modern West Coast IPA. And listeners will have heard us talk about this before, Denny and I having lots of arguments, uh, whether or not the West Coast IPA is actually has a new modern variant or not. And I think he's finally come around to that there is a new modern variant. Now the big debate that we always have is over crystal malt, which is also a debate we just had. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, you know, interestingly enough, and, you know, we're, we're talking about HomebrewCon, but, uh, you know, just, just, uh, week or so ago, uh, you know, the BA released the uh, 2023 uh, styled guidelines, which, uh, you know, now includes West Coast IPA as its own category um, while maintaining the American IPA category. So, uh, you know, on, on a consumer, you know, product level of brewing, uh, we've got recognition that, you know, there is something that, you know, is perhaps distinctively different, uh, at least, you know, within some some realm of nuance uh, to uh, to kind of uh, deviate from the you know the American style IPA as, as we've known it to be um, and and uh, I for one am, am happy to see it because you know uh, the crystal malt IPA you know that we've known for years and still has a place in in many markets uh, is is definitely not the beer that we're making today down here in, at in North Park uh, most of the time so um, but uh, yeah I, I, I feel like we're uh, we're definitely on the uh, you know modern contemporary you know West Coast style IPA uh, you know tip um, in our in our brewery well let's talk about that hop food because as you alluded to hop food is an older recipe now uh, yeah given back uh, you know how, how far back you and I go with the brewing stuff um, right um, how has that changed over time or has it changed? It has changed and it's changed commercially. I mean, like when we first opened, um, it was, you know, I tried to scale that recipe on sort of a linear basis. And, you know, at that point, you know, it was a two row based, uh, you know, pale malt uh, beer um, that had, you know, a little bit of uh, Crystal 40. Um, and, you know, commercially we iterated through a few different types of Crystal malt, whether, you know, we were using like, uh, you know, uh, like a crisp uh, Crystal 40. Uh, we, you know, worked with uh, um, T50 from Simpsons for a little bit, um, you know, even tried like Crystal 40 from Brees, uh, you know, and just, uh, but it was always like, you know, no more than 3% of the grist, just enough, you know, in, in the homebrew days, I always referred to it as kind of like a salt and pepper sprinkle, you know, just to add you know, a little bit more roundness and depth, but, Just a um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was never supposed to like add this sort of like sweet, you know, over the top sort of, uh, you know, caramel flavor. Um, and I felt like at the time, you know, 20, you know, 16 was when, you know, June we opened. Uh, and I, I'd say that the, the most eye opening experience I had, um, with sort of iterating through, uh, modernizing the recipe, um, it was, uh, you know, the, the probably the 2017 uh, LA IPA Fest, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, for those who aren't familiar, is a, uh, you know, it's an IPA Fest where uh, a bunch of breweries are invited and they're also invited to send their, you know, their head brewer, their, their brewing staff, you know, um, to judge uh, the competition. So it's like a, a, a peer judged competition, you know, all on the same day. Uh, and it goes through several rounds. And the cool thing is all these beers are on, on tap, 
uh, at the venue. Uh, you know, this used to be um, Mohawk Bend, mm-hmm. um, and you'd you'd taste these beers. You know, you'd you'd get a, a ten ounce pour of your beer, and then you'd go grab you know uh, you know any of the other beers that you were looking up to. And I remember side by siding them and being like, whoa, my beer is so out of touch from like the beers that have historically been winning this competition and being able to just on a sensory level, pick apart the differences. I'm like, man, mine is so multi and mine is, you know, even with just something that wasn't over the top in my opinion uh, with, you know, the crystal malt. Um, But just the expression of hops was so much cleaner and brighter and, you know, more, uh, you know, more complex uh, within just the hop character and it was, you know, kind of a light bulb moment and, uh, you know, big inspiration uh, to kind of go back to the drawing board and think about, you know, what it is that uh, is getting uh, people really excited about West Coast um, IPAs, you know, in in the most modern sense. Um, yeah. Although, to be fair, and because I, I can hear Denny grinding his teeth as he's editing this. Um, <laughs> That is not to say that Crystal Malt doesn't have a place in IPAs, yeah. Because to Denny's point, and he's said this many times when we've had this discussion, there are plenty of examples, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, of very hop-forward IPAs that do still have Crystal Malt in them. It's just as we start to talk about this newer, modern IPA that's particularly very California-based, uh, yep. that it is largely largely askews Crystal Malt. It does. Um, it 100% does. Uh, and, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, if you go up to the Pacific Northwest um, and grab, you know, any number of West Coast IPAs that have crystal malt and you're having the, ex- uh, the opportunity to taste them fresh. I think that that is so important when you're talking about that beer that that, that may have uh, a good hit of crystal malt in it, that um, it it deteriorates rapidly in the package. Like there's oxidation character that comes from, from those that, you know, kind of doesn't work so well um, with a big hop charge and the hops start getting a little bit muddied up. Um, But when you can drink those beers super fresh, I I totally agree. Like they're, they can be, you know, delicious and, and they're reminiscent of, you know, uh, a time when, I was cutting my teeth, you know, just as a home brewer, and I, I look back fondly on so many of those beers that I would drink, you know, and and a lot of the breweries that uh, were brewing West Coast IPA, you know, in San Diego were using a, a good, you know, hit of crystal malt too. So, um, you know, absolutely uh, kind of important to the the history, and for anybody who's still making them that way, you know, and, and doing a good job, uh, yeah, those those can still be delicious beers, um, but they're not so much, you know, uh, on my palate as you know. And again, as a brewery that puts beer in cans and you know gets shipped off to places, and you know, we we demand cold storage and things like that. Um, I, I want the beer to, you know, hold on as long as possible. Um, and so, you know, we've just kind of adapted to this, you know, maybe California, you know, centric approach to uh, what where West Coast IPAs have gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's that's how we're doing it now. 
And, I mean, again, like, you know, there are plenty of, like, examples from the Pacific Northwest, like, say, anything from Bailbreaker uh, that do this. But I also always think back, you know, you remember the original Green Flash West Coast IPA, you know, that uh, Chuck Silva's 7% IPA that sort of revolutionized the market. You go and you look at that now, that beer's orange. Yeah. (laughs) It's yeah, no, no, I mean, that, yeah, the, the color is, is definitely, uh, you know, uh, a, a big piece of it. I mean, you, you can look at it and know what you're getting into. Um, yeah. All right. But now that's, that's where things have gone over time. And we've just spent a lot of time focusing on the malt bill because I think that's one of the, that was one of the funnier discussions that the three of us had when we were coming, coming up with this recipe. And yeah. again, just to remind everybody and set the context, for the homebrew con coming up here in a couple of weeks as we're talking, uh, we wanted to have beer service at the talk because it's really great to have beer while you're talking about beer. Go figure. Um, and when we were talking about that, of course, we can't do enough homebrew to serve a whole lecture room. And so you almost have to collaborate commercially. And, and of course, I turned around to Danny and I said, what about Kelsey? Kelsey's down there and he makes great IPAs. And so that's how we how we all got engaged. And also Thank because, you. well, because also you have that homebrewing context, as you just said, you you were a homebrewer for over a decade and won many yeah. many awards. So it was like coming home day. Yeah, yeah, no, this, this is a really cool project to uh, to get looped into. I'm super stoked to uh, to participate. I mean, you know, if if there's one thing that you know I like to do whenever I can, it's you know kind of pay it forward. You know, people. Uh, were gracious with uh, you know their their time and you know uh, expertise you know that you know help me uh, you know get my brewing chops and so you know if I can if I can do something that uh, kind of goes back toward uh, you know the home brewing community that that you know I I love so much uh, you know super stoked to be you know involved so. And so, again, the talk in San Diego is going to be all about modern hop techniques and West Coast IPA, because I think the argument, and I have a slide in there that says it basically, it's like, we can't let the hazy people have all the fun. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I mean, yeah, uh, I'm, and I'm all about it, so, um, yeah. So the beer that, that we've given uh, rise to out of this, I think, is tentatively being called Denny Kong, is that right? Yeah, Denny Kong. So, you know, the, the can art's going to have uh, sort of a Donkey Kong, uh, you know, level scene with, uh, you know, some uh, some character customizations, uh, you know, with the likeness of uh, of uh, Denny's head on, uh, you know, King Kong's body. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have some uh, some elements of Drew on there. And, you know, it's it's going to be, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's shaping up to be a pretty fun can, so. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. And, and, of course, the can's one thing, but I really can't wait to taste the beer because uh, that's the name of the game, right? Of course. Um, and so, again, not letting the hazies have all the fun, but as we were talking, I thought one thing that was interesting when we started to do this collab uh, discussion was in talking about hop use and talking about techniques that are adapted, you told me, if I'm remembering the conversation correctly, that for you at North Park, there's very little difference in how you treat hops for sort of your classic West Coast clear bitter IPA versus what you do for your hazies, right? Yeah, that's 100% true. Um, you know, we've uh, we've leaned into a lot of, uh, you know, kind of our, our exploration of, uh, you know, trying to get more and more out of our hops um, and, you know, doing these massive, uh, heavily dry hopped uh, hazy IPAs 
was to start experimenting with, um, you know, application of the same sort of techniques. Uh, and so, you know, one thing that we've done with our hazy IPAs is, uh, you know, employ uh, a small active fermentation dry hop. Um, and we'll usually use a concentrated hop pellet for that, like a cryo. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not a big charge at that step, but, um, you know, there's, there's, even in, in even with uh, a lot of uh, Chico derived types of uh, clean yeast strains, there's still some element of biotransformation that happens there, you know, and you get uh, these more pronounced fruit flavors uh, by having that yeast interaction, um, you know, and so so that's one thing that that we do. Um, uh, we've uh, you know kind of. Uh, taken a, a, a very uh, intentional approach to sort of a dip hopping technique that's a little bit um, unique to our brewery that uh, has been cool to see a lot of other commercial commercial breweries pick up on over time as we've uh, you know talked about it through collabs um, where we'll take you know a liquid uh, pourable hop product you know like a CO2 extract product um, and you know in some cases, you know, we would be using incognito, uh, which is uh, comes from Haas. In this particular case, um, for the beer that we're doing, uh, we were able to secure uh, a product that um, Yakima Chief is experimenting with right now, which is uh, is called Trial 702. Um, Rolls and, right off the tongue, doesn't it? Oh, it does, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this is a, a citrus CO2 extract that comes in a, you know, pourable liquid. Um, and, uh, so, you know, where, uh, I, you know, we haven't actually done, uh, traditional dip hopping here, uh, at North Park, but when, when we use these liquid, uh, hop products, um, in the fermenter, we'll basically, uh, add it to the tank and then we'll knock out a little bit of our wort, uh, warm. Um, and then, uh, after that solution has come together, uh, in the cone of the tank, uh, we'll continue knocking out um, and turn on the heat X uh, and we'll make sure that we get, you know, all the wort in the tank homogenized to a uh, pitchable temperature. Um, but we're finding that, you know, in addition to that uh, early active fermentation dry hop with uh, the concentrated pellets, um, we're getting this really intense, like fruity, like blast of hop flavor um, from these, uh, you know, from this extract uh, addition at knockout. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we haven't even gotten to like the main part of our dry hop and we just have like huge, uh, fruit flavors and aroma, you know, depending on what hop variety we're using. So cool to use, uh, Yakima chiefs, um, you know, sort of, uh, take on, on that, uh, product, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then, uh, you well, know, as, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, and just to, just to back up and set the, the, Everybody on the same level. You're saying, "Hey, you know, this is our take on on dip popping." Uh, as I remember from reading, because I haven't done the technique yet, uh, dip popping at the commercial level is basically adding a a hot charge to the fermenter, right? And then kind of keeping it capped so you don't lose any of the aroma. Correct. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But so for sure, that that's what I know dip popping to be. So you would you would knock out some wort hot, um, and you know I, I'm I think I think that's typically how it's done, and, you know. And the idea is that 
there are some uh, enzymes present in hops, you know, that will break down, um, you know, our uh, more complex long-chain sugars into simpler sugars, which can lead to some over-attenuation or hop creep. So you would want to, you know, knock out um, warmer, uh, you know, probably in a sort of pasteurization zone, you know, say like 165, 170 to neutralize those enzymes um, and then, uh, you know, get the rest of your word in there cold enough um, so that, you know, when you pitch, you're not killing your yeast and, and you're, uh, you're uh, retaining all those uh, hop compounds. So kind of like a, a hop back approach, but, um, you know, that you're letting those uh, hop compounds, uh, you know, in their entire state ride through the fermentation. But so instead of doing this with hot pellets, you're using one of these liquid products that's sort of like a liquid hot sludge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I said, big, big, big aroma, big flavor. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you find – and like, so what's the difference for you from, say, doing that as opposed to doing Whirlpool? Um, well, you know, it's, uh, it's having those compounds, like all of them. Um, in the fermenter. So to, you know, kind of back up to how we got here, um, through some collabs, uh, we had done a collab, uh, with Scott Wood from the courtyard brewery several years ago. Um, they have a, a nano brewery in uh, New Orleans. Um, and he was big on like varietal specific CO2 extracts, uh, used in the whirlpool. And, uh, you know, we, we really liked what we got out of it, but as we used it, you know, we would notice that the walls of our kettle would just end up saturated with hop resins um, during knockout. And it's like, well, how much of this actually got it into the fermenter? Like, did we get all out of this product, you know, what, what we wanted? And how many and dollars so, are you leaving on the side of the tank? Totally. And, and, uh, and so I, I started thinking about ways to move that downstream, and we actually, you know, we, we went progressively into like a, uh, a stainless steel inline canister, not dissimilar to a hop back, but much smaller since we're dealing with a small amount of uh, hop, hop extract and not a bunch of whole cone hops and put that in line in between our kettle and our heat exchanger. Um, and sort of the next iteration of that was seeing that our heat exchanger now, because, you know, you've got uh, this Junk. extract, uh, you know, it never clogged the heat exchanger, but when you go to run your CIP, it would, your CIP liquid would turn like bright green. And it's like, oh, well, that's where all that ended up. It got solidified once it hit, um, the plates in the heat exchanger. And so, um, then we, you know, iterated again and said, okay, well, we'll load it up in there. We'll not, we'll send a, uh, send it through hot get it to clear the heat exchanger and then we'll turn on the heat exchanger and just through being pragmatic and not wanting to deal with this canister which is you know a very hot piece of equipment at that point sitting on the floor and you know trying to get the air bubbles out of it just seemed kind of you know potentially dangerous um you know we uh we then just uh we did a, a collab with uh, the guys at cellar maker and they said hey why don't we just launch this stuff through the uh, manway door of the fermenter and just call it a day, and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's easy. It's less equipment. There's less things to go wrong. The, yeah. the only potential downside is long-term exposure on the hop material, but again, since you're using one of these uh, kind of concentrated products, you have less vegetation in there, so potentially exactly. less side effect. 
Yeah, and, and kind of my approach here, you know, because hazy IPAs notoriously, um, when they're dry hopped, you know, intensely have a lot of that hop burn polyphenol bite. Um, and as I'm putting hops in earlier in fermentation, you know, like the, the cryo concentrated pellet um, and this liquid, we don't have, you know, nearly as much of that uh, vegetal, you know, matter to contribute those, uh, that polyphenol uh, bitterness and astringency. Um, so you get a lot of the nice stuff out of the hops um, without, you know, loading up on all that. Um yeah, and then, uh, you know, when we do get to our dry hopped, you know, with, with T90s um, and, you know, often more cryo, uh, typically that's, you know, post-fermentation. Um, and, you know, that charge at that step could be, you know, around four pounds per barrel. Um, you know, and that's not saying, like, with the concentrated pellet, we're going like, you know, we're, we're not calling that like a two-to-one you know, if you were doing that math, you know, we could end up in the theoretical uh, six pounds per barrel, you know, at that point. And um, we don't necessarily deviate from that, whether we're making a hazy IPA or a West Coast. Where it does deviate is on the hazy IPA. If we go to the, you know, triple dry hopped, um, then we may end up with, you know, another small charge at the very end um, prior to crashing. But we, we do... Um, occasionally make triple dry hopped uh, West Coast IPAs, but more often than not, they're what I would call double dry hopped, where we're introducing uh, some some sort of pellet uh, during active fermentation and then another charge post fermentation. Mm-hmm. And then and so we're doing that for the West Coast and then for the hazies. So I mean, it, it all stays pretty consistent, which is also good because consistent brewery process leads to less mistakes. Yes, <laughs> I. 100% agree with that, yes. Yeah. Uh, as, as Denny and I have talked about before, a lot of times disasters or problems in the brewery happen when you go off script. <laughs> so, For sure. Uh, do you want to take a half a moment? Because we, uh, we do have to recognize a couple folks who've made all of this possible. Uh, because this isn't just a collaboration between us and you. It's also a collaboration involving ingredients from our good friends at uh, what BSG, at Y Yeast and at Yakima Chief. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, Brewer Supply Group was uh, you know um, generous to uh, supply us with uh, malt for this beer. Um, so uh, for uh, West Coast IPAs and hazy IPAs, you know we tend to use uh, uh, low colored uh, Pilsner malts. Um, so we we got uh, raw North Star Pils. Um, as sort of our foundation malt. Uh, Denny was uh, very insistent that we get some character malt in there. Um, and uh, I, uh, I fought him on the crystal, um, and uh, we, we didn't end up using any crystal malt, but we did use um, a nice, uh, nice amount of uh, Vireman uh, Vienna malt. Um, and, uh, well, part and, of our, and to the that? point, I mean, like a little bit of Vienna or Munich is a perfectly wonderful addition to the modern West coast IPA. I, I agree. Yeah. A, a small amount can add some, some nice little, uh, you know, background note that, uh, you know, it can add a little bit of interest in body, um, and, you know, not confuse, uh, what the beer's goal is as far as being very hoppy. Um, 
we've got some Vireman acidulated in there, uh, which, you know, that we use that as part of our, uh, you know, mash acidification in, in most of our, uh, our IPAs here. Um, and then uh, on the hop side, uh, yeah, we got that uh, Trial 702 from Yakima Chief, and they also uh, provided us with uh, some Warrior T90 that we used for uh, bitterness, um, we use uh, some Cascade Cryo uh, in both our uh, Whirlpool and uh, early uh, dry hop. Um, and then uh, we hit it with, you know, what I would call the holy trinity uh, of West Coast IPA hops that many brewers would agree with. Uh, we've got um, Mosaic, uh, Citra, and Simcoe T90s. And then as uh, in addition, we've got uh, Simcoe Cryo, Citra Cryo, and Mosaic Cryo. Um, and then uh, yeast that was uh, new to us, but uh, Denny was a huge fan of. Um, that one is the, uh, let me see here, um, sorry, it's a number. Uh, it's the West Coast uh, IPA uh, strain from Y Yeast. Uh, that one is 12, sorry. 1272? 1272, yeah. Yeah, to homebrewers, that's uh, American Ale 2, which is purportedly anchor liberty okay got it uh, who knows how accurate that that is but that's yeah. that's the rumor that goes around so we got we got the 1272 in there and anchor liberty is a wonderful ipa so it's a perfectly good ipa base um and i do want to emphasize like part of the point of the talk is also talking i think like the most newfangled hop that you talked about that's in that mix i mean other than the, the new hop product was mosaic everything else in that is sort of just super classical like you could have talked about a beer with that 15 years ago and nobody would have blinked <laughs> yeah um, um yeah I, I yeah i i know denny you know uh wanted to keep this beer um having some classic elements that would be recognizable um and you know i think most home brewers are uh familiar with you know all the hops in this beer at this point in time, I mean, um, but yeah, Mosaic, you know, it's been on the scene for, for long enough. Um, well, yeah. And also let's talk importantly, cause I think this is one of those other bits that's changed over times. Uh, IBU wise, we weren't targeting like a stonking amount of bitterness. I mean, we're still targeting a reasonable amount of bitterness, but not like over the top, you know, early uh, and like 2010 sort of IBU levels. Right. Yeah, um, since we nixed the crystal malt, um, you know, we wanted the bitterness to be more like a, you know, one gravity unit to bittering unit ratio. Um, and, you know, similar, you know, another approach, you know, sort of process here. Uh, what we do at North Park to keep our bitterness pretty consistent, um, a lot of our IPA grists are similar um, and our, our approach is similar, and I'm not necessarily trying to get a lot of uh, isomerization out of our Whirlpool edition because we do step the kettle down and do, you know, a hop stand at, like, 170. I know there's a bit of isomerization there, but it's, it's, it's just not that much. Um, so I try to establish, like, you know, almost all, if not all, of our uh, IBUs um, from the 60-minute or first-word hop edition that we might do. Um, I like Warrior for 60 minute. I think you know it's nice and clean, um, and so yeah, uh, you know this beer is going to come in pretty close to 60 IBUs. 
Right. So good and bitter, but not not over the top. Um, and again, talking about a lot of the same techniques that, that we've talked about for a long while. Again, using a nice neutral bittering hop. I do. Uh, I can't wait to see what the pseudo hop dip. I don't know. The the, yeah. the, uh, the the false hop dip, you know, the fool's hop dip, whatever you want to call it, um, <laughs> you know, does for the beer. And then for the, the dry hop, you know, all those additional flavors that we're getting there. Now, for the dry hop, we've been talking a lot recently about the science that shows, like, hey, you know, different temperature levels get different extraction rates of different compounds and will express different characters. So, like, the classic one from Shellhammer has been talking about if you do short, cold dry hopping, you get a lot of linalool expression. Um, for your dry hopping preferences, what are you trying to go for? Well, in general, I mean, we're we're trying to get uh, big fruit, um, and so you know whether it's a West Coast or a hazy, we do run different temperatures, you know, depending on what yeast strain we're running. Uh, but for you know these Chico uh, sort of derivative yeasts, uh, we'll We'll, we'll run, uh, you know, we'll pitch around 64, um, and then we'll let it uh, free rise a little bit through fermentation, um, you know, get through uh, diacetyl, and then we'll get the tank up to around 70 degrees. And uh, we're, we're dry hopping at that temperature, um, and we don't, you know, we don't soft crash, mm-hmm. um, you know, any yeast that hits the cone organically just through the process, we'll, we'll remove it from the tank every day. Um, but, yeah, we keep that, that tank temp up, um, and I find that the vibrant, you know, fruity uh, characteristic, um, you know, that comes out of our tanks, uh, you know, at that range is, is exactly what I'm trying to get. Um, yeah, when we first started our dry hop program, uh, commercially, we were doing a soft crash. We were dry hopping cooler and um you know i i just find that that the expression is is much more full fruit um well and to keep in mind uh, like because linalool for instance is what floral spicy and citrus yep yeah so yeah if you're trying to push if you're going in that direction that would say hey go cooler if you're pushing fruit characters and those are going to be a different extraction rate and for you you found that to be better warm yep um and then how much time because that's the other big one right yeah, so you know that early dry hop um, that that happens like right when we're ready to to harvest yeast for the first time. So you know we haven't had a whole lot hitting the cone, and then you know for us that's like day six. Um, we're gonna you know pull yeast out for reharvest, you know for repitching, um, and uh, then we're going to go ahead and hit it with that small charge. That's you know at that point less than a pound per barrel of uh, concentrated pellet. Um, and you know, we're, we're letting the tank, you know, get into the 70, uh, range at that point. Um, we've got the jackets, you know, set point, uh, up, it may not be quite there yet, but once those hops go in, it, you know, does freshen up the fermentation, um, and it, it'll get there pretty quick. Uh, and then, uh, you know, at that point where, uh, our, our gravity would be around 1014, um, and, uh, we're going to let that get down to, well, I mean, our target typically is 1010 um, uh, for, for, for my palate um, with the bitterness where we've got it dialed in uh, that, that works for me. Um, I like that uh, amount of uh, residual sweetness and dextrins. Um, sometimes we'll creep past that, but uh, we kind of set up the recipe so that, you know, that that's where we typically will land. 
Uh, and then uh, after we've got, you know, to that gravity, which might take a couple of days um, from uh, from that first dry hop, then we'll go ahead and, and uh, add in the rest. And like I said, we're, we're shaving all of our yeast off of the tank every day. We, mm-hmm. you know, there There is some yeast that's still in solution since we haven't done any sort of a tank crash. Um, but at that point, we are... Uh, you know, we, we've gotten as much of it out as has naturally settled. Okay, but again, we're not uh, we're no longer looking at like the the big long dry hop times that everybody used to do. Yeah, yeah. So so to to finish that off, uh, a couple days after that next charge goes in, um, our tanks are uh, are uh, the geometry is like a three to one ratio. So we're a little bit taller than what uh, is typical because um, we do have very high ceilings uh, at our brewery. Um, and just trying to maximize the space. That's how we set it up. Uh, we'll do a recirculation. Uh, re, you know, we'll recirculate the tank. Um, you know, two days after the big dry hop goes in, and then we're basically crashing right after. Um, if you know, after verifying that uh, through sensory that there's no VDK uh, remaining. So yeah, it's a pretty short contact on the uh, the big dry hop before we crash it out. Yeah, and so uh, just as a reminder, VDK is the precursor to diacyl. So. Uh, yep. uh, brewers, professional brewers are always worried about making sure that all the VDK is gone so they don't get diastole down the line. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and again, these are, these are some of the same techniques that we're, that we're talking about here with the beer uh, or that we're going to talk to in the talk. Um, one of the, one of the things, do you guys ever do anything? I know you said you had acidulated malt in the mash, but that's for, that's for controlling pH in the mash, right? But not necessarily doing anything like, acidifying to deal with pH rise from a dry hop, right? Yeah, we don't adjust for pH rise in the dry hop. Um, What we do adjust for, uh, at the start of a boil, we will adjust down to 5.2, you know, to encourage a good hot break, um, because our mash pH target is uh, 5.35. And then... uh, at the end of boil um, for a West Coast IPA, uh, we're usually targeting uh, 5.1 to 5.15 uh, for knockout. Um, we do end up uh, with a fairly high finishing pH, uh, you know, per post-fermentation, post-dry hop, um, you know, where it's not unusual for us to end up, um, you know, in the 4.6 to 4.7 range. Right. Um and for the way that our beers drink, I don't, I don't find that to be uh, offensive in any way. Um, but it is, you know, definitely on the high end. Right. Yeah, and because we've talked with other brewers before, where they try to drop that pH a little bit further down for the for the post dry hop creep that happens up, so that they feel like the beer stays crisp. Yeah. And I, I think that this is, you know, kind of a bridge from our uh, sort of modernization, you know, uh, application of, of uh, West Coast IPA brewing, uh, which came directly from brewing hazy IPAs. Um, you know, the, the hazy IPAs, uh, it's not unusual for those to finish even higher, right. uh, especially when they get a lot more dry hops and, and just liking the uh, the expression um, and the mouthfeel that we're getting on those. I... I I liked where we ended up um, with West Coast IPA, and you know, and, and haven't really worked to bring those numbers back down uh, after you know, kind of, uh, you know, hybridizing the, uh, the the two styles. All right. Well, 
that's going to be the the Denny Kong, which will be available at various places around HomebrewCon <laughs> and yep. available at our talk that we'll be giving. And you know, watch your schedules for that. And I think there we're trying to settle details for any final conference events that will be happening. So mm-hmm. pay attention to the podcast. We'll make sure all those details go out. Uh, it turns out that yeah, we can collaborate to make a beer, but sometimes it takes more collaboration in order to figure out uh, when are we serving the beer. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Kelsey, before I let you go, any other last words about either the Denny Kong or the modern West Coast IPA or IPAs in general? Uh, no, just keep drinking them because I sure as heck like making them, um, you know. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, make them, make them crisp, make them clean, uh, and uh, use a heck of a lot of hops. And, you know, let's let's celebrate hops. I feel like that's, that's – uh, that's what modern IP, IPA uh, is is all about, you know. It's it's my favorite thing to drink, and uh, yeah, it's, there we it's go. good stuff. And for those of you who are coming to San Diego, you can find Kelsey's. North Park has two locations now: the the appropriately named North Park location, <laughs> and where, where's the other one? Because my San Diego geography is not the best. Yeah, so um, anyone coming into uh, in, into town for the conference? Um, so uh, we're a quick shot up the hill from uh, the airport on da- in the downtown area. Um, so uh, North Park is on like the northeastern corner of Balboa Park, not far from the zoo. The zoo's uh, in Balboa Park, uh, and then on the west side of Balboa Park is a neighborhood called Bankers Hill. Um, and so our new location over there is at uh, 3095 uh, um, Fifth Avenue. Uh, it's on the corner of Fifth and Redwood. There we go. So, and I believe, I mean, neither location is really all that far from the town and country. So, no, I mean, you can easily get to either one. Uh, we don't brew at the Bankers Hill location, so if you're looking to, you know, check out all of our uh, our brew house, and uh, um, you know, we've got. Uh, you know, uh, a, a kind of a different vibe. Um, you know, it's, it's it's a much larger space at the brewery, um, but they're they're both uh, both fun to spend time in for sure. There we are. All right. And so, folks, make sure you pay attention to the podcast. We'll tell you all the details. We'll put the details on the website. We'll put the details on socials. But uh, look forward to the Denny Kong and our ideas on what modern West Coast IPA means. And Kelsey, it's only a couple of weeks, and I'll see you down there, buddy. Sounds good, Drew. This was fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. So uh, there you go. Those are Kelsey's concepts on making an IPA. We're going to be talking about a lot of those things during our seminar at HomebrewCon. But if you can't make it, there's a little preview. Yeah. And don't forget, Wednesday, June 21st, 6 to 8 p.m., we will be at North Park Beer, along with our friends at BSG Handcraft, to give away a grandfather and to enjoy some fine, fine pints of Denny Kong. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, man. I can hardly wait to try it. Well, I really want to try the the Trial 7, was it 702? Yeah. Because uh, I, I want to see how that works. So it be interesting to see that uh, as a concept in the beer. Yeah, especially as a Whirlpool edition. So. Yep. Okay, let's get out of here, shall we? Oh, sure. Why not? We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be wrapping things up. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. 
This small batch two-in-one distillation system operates in either pot still or reflux mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug and play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Thank you. We're back. It's time to get you out of here. So first, a quick tip. Uh, This quick tip comes from my little misadventure with my hoblin shoes that I mentioned. As always, pay attention or accept the consequences. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess that applies to so much in life. But, uh, you know, if I had watched what I was doing when I grabbed that yeast, I would have noticed that I had two different types. Uh, I didn't, I just saw they both started with three. I thought, okay, that'll do it. Uh, and, and in, in this case, it, uh, it was a serendipitous mistake. It, it turned out well, and I think that I learned something from it. That's not always the case. So just remember in brewing as in life, pay attention or accept the consequences. Or accept the consequences and hope they turn out good. Yeah. Well, there you go. And of course, Before we leave you something other than beer, because life is not just all about beer, even though beer is wonderful. Uh, And as you all know, I've been playing a lot more games recently, thanks to the fact I got a Steam Deck. Yay. Still enjoy the damn thing. Uh, And one of the games I've been playing is a game called Dredge. And Dredge is, the, the best way to put it is it is a Lovecraftian fishing simulator. (laughs) <laughs> See, those are words I had never imagined would go together. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a relatively short game. I think I, I beat it on my first playthrough in, I don't know, about uh, 12, 16 hours or so. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those games where you, you get a fishing boat, you get to upgrade it, you know, buy new engines, make your uh, put in nets and all that sort of fun stuff. And it also turns out at night in this world, monsters come out. And the monsters <laughs> attack your boat if you're out uh, out of port during the evening. And sometimes you have to be if you want to catch all the fish uh, or advance in certain parts of the storyline. So it's a quick little indie game. Uh, it is very well made, I thought. And it's an enjoyable and relatively inexpensive game. I think it was like 25 bucks when I bought it on sale or something like that. And, you know, but it, it's just fun to go back and try and collect all the fish and also figure out the, the storyline of what's happening in this world. So there you go. <laughs> it is called Dredge, uh, as in I am dredging the deeps. And uh, I highly recommend it. Available on all your platforms for playing. Wow. <laughs> what a concept, man. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Lovecraftian fishing simulator. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. 
You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel. You can find me mainly on the AHA forum and Facebook, but you know what the heck, I'm around a lot of different places. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can shoot us a text or leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE. That's 626-765-1253. We hope to see you in San Diego next week. But uh, until then, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 